Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the last days of summer as we head into Labor Day weekend. If it got lost on your last days of summer vacation, last weekend's Yankees-Dodgers series afforded me an opportunity to relive some past Yankees-Dodgers World Series memories with the great Steve Garvey. You can check that out on our 30 with Murdy archive. Perhaps another October chapter coming to that old baseball rivalry. Now for this episode, we turn to college athletics with a Yankees tie-in. There's a name that crossed on the transaction page a few months ago that might have sounded familiar to Yankee fans who have a memory for all that passed through pinstripes. Mike Buddy was not a star in the 1998 Yankees, but he did make his Major League debut and pitched in 24 games, starting two of them that season, for the team that won 114 games and the World Series. Buddy appeared in two games in 1999, then spent parts of three seasons with Milwaukee before embarking on his next career in college athletic administration. Almost exactly 17 years to the day after his last big league game, Buddy was hired as the athletic director at Army, also known as the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Buddy's baseball career was highlighted by his eight years in the Yankees organization, drafted in 1992, taken by the Yankees out of Wake Forest with their fourth round selection. It was the Yankees' second pick in that draft. Their first, that was Derek Jeter. So Buddy's minor league career saw him cross paths with Jeter, Mariano Rivera, and many other Yankees that were part of the dynasty that formed in the late 90s. He gives his unique perspective on the building blocks of that dynasty. Buddy gives us insight into the life of a Yankee minor leaguer who isn't quite the same level of prospect as ones who now reside in Monument Park, but the experience and the lessons certainly have lasted a lifetime. You'll hear Buddy tell you about being in the room for the now legendary players-only meeting that jump-started the 1998 Yankees after a 1-4 start to the season, a meeting that happened just minutes after Buddy's Major League debut. You'll also hear about the moment that Mike Buddy earned the respect of some heavy hitters on the 1998 Yankees and did it by throwing just one pitch. Buddy's post-playing career has now brought him to the position of athletic director at Army, and we discuss that job at hand and what it means to be in that position at an institution like West Point. Recorded last week on the West Point campus in the Hudson Valley, here's my conversation with Mike Buddy. So Mike, you were the second player the Yankees chose in the 1992 draft. Do you happen to remember who the first one was? Yeah, um, yeah it's hard to forget. And, and I tell the story all the time. So Derek Jeter was the first player picked. I was the second player picked. One of the scouts was fired immediately. The other one was promoted. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's good research. Yeah, it, was, it was a heck of a year to get that phone call uh, at the end of a day where you're hoping to get drafted to find out it's the New York Yankees was was pretty special. Well, and at that time, the Yankees were not, you know, what we know now. They were going through a little bit of a down period. They had had the great history, but they were not the organization everybody was dying to be a part of. But just getting that call still meant something. Oh, absolutely. And as a young man, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so a huge Indians, Browns, Cavs fan. And, you know, I remember hanging up the phone, and my parents were so excited. And, of course, that was 
you know, like you said, before the internet, before, you know, you just had to wait for the phone to ring. Mm-hmm. And, and I hung up the phone and I said, hey, what, what's the one team you don't want me to say? And both my parents said, the Yankees. <laughs> uh, but they, they quickly learned to, to jump on board when you, when you start getting a paycheck and you start uh, following your son. So it was, uh, it was a great experience for me. As you start your pro career, the 1993 Greensboro Hornets, the 1994 Tampa Yankees, this is obviously a very transformational time in Yankees history, and we know who your teammates were. What do you remember about very young versions of Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter those two years? Yeah, so Mariano was meticulous. So I remember it was my first full season in professional baseball. I played a half season in Oneana the summer before, but uh, Mariano would keep a pitching chart, and it was like a, a work of art. And so, um, you know, obviously everybody knows who he is now, the type of person he is. Phenomenal, phenomenal teammate. Um, but just re- was a true professional, which is unusual for a Latin American kid from Panama um, at a young age. But like, literally, if, if the one that he wrote to, to record a fastball wasn't perfectly straight, he would erase it and do it over. So um, tremendous attention to detail. He tried to throw four pitches back then. I'm glad somebody finally told him, hey, you've got one that nobody can hit. Let's just work on that. And then funny, you know, Derek Jeter, you know, I was quoted in, in one of those books, I think the captain that, that talked about it. He, he led the league in errors. He made the most errors in South Atlantic League history. But there was still undeniable that he was such a talented kid. That was a team of mostly to all college age kids except for Derek. So we were all three or four years older. We could go have a beer after the game. He couldn't and, and didn't want to, frankly, um, which is great. And he kept that with him. But he was just so raw. He was on, you know, he, he, he hadn't been harnessed yet. And most of his errors, as I remember, were his, his arm strength was so good, he would field a ball in the hole and, and throw it into the fifth row. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody wanted to see that. There was pressure on him as having been a first-round pick and having been touted with all these tools. I think he wanted to show them. And so uh, he worked hard on that, obviously, and it worked out okay for him in the long run. You know, it's funny. One of the things I remember that stands out in his bio is that that year he is also voted by the managers in the league – through Baseball America as the best defensive shortstop in the league. A year he makes 50-something errors. So, But you could see how they were being made, why they were being made, and where the potential really was. No doubt. And so, yeah, that's a perfect example. People leave professional baseball games and they think, yeah, this guy's terrible. But it shows you baseball people see greatness. And mm-hmm. so it was – he was undeniable at that point. And, and, again, you looked at him physically. He had no business being able to swing a wooden bat. He weighed 165 pounds yeah. maybe. Um, but he was he was turning balls around on guys throwing 96, you know, only 10 months out of high school in, in Kalamazoo. So, yeah, it was undeniable that he was going to be something special. What you don't know is, is he going to stay healthy? Is he going to stay with one organization? Is he going to be able to avoid some of the, ta- some of the things that – some of our future teammates, Daryl Strawberry, Dwight yeah. Gooden, you know, would he be able to steer clear of some of those pitfalls? And obviously, he was raised incredibly well by by two very well-educated, wonderful people. And um, that's kind of what happens when all those great things kind of come together and, and you do stay healthy. You have a Hall of Fame career like he's had. So aside from what you could tell was certain ability, I mean, nobody is going to be smart enough to tell you that they're going to be first ballot Hall of Famers at that age. What are some of the other things that you recall them as far as just how they were, were as far as teammates, as far as leaders, some of the things that you would see later on? Did any of those signs show early on? No doubt. Absolutely. And of course, in my current position here at West Point, we talk about leadership and character and integrity. And and Mariano and Derek are two perfect examples that, that they it, it's it can't be taught. You're either you're either a servant and you're humble and you're hungry 
Um, so all the great things that you hear about teammates, you know, putting the team first. You know, Derek didn't care where he was going to hit in the lineup. He he went out of his way to 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 be a goofball like the rest of us. We all knew that he had just signed for one point six million dollars, and the rest of us were eating macaroni and cheese. <laughs> and so it's tough sometimes to be welcomed into the team mm-hmm. when when so many of us struggled, and 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 of course I was. I had signed for a decent bonus, so I was kind of closer to Derek than the rest of them. Um, but it, there's, it, it, you can't force that kind of stuff. And so the, the chemistry um, of that team was kind of started at the top where you knew there was one kid who was destined for greatness, and he went out of his way to make sure that, that he was carrying the bags, you know, raking the batter's box on the weekends like like the rest of us are expected to do he he wanted to do everything that we were expected to do Mariano the same way you know he was he was in his third year in professional baseball so he was kind of he knew a little bit more about life on the road and and how how to handle things and so he was quick to to grab a younger guy and kind of point him the way and you just watch those guys when no one else is watching if you pay attention they're the exact same guys that they are when the cameras are on and so you know great life lessons about just servant leadership really so you spent you know five six years in the minor league system with the yankees as those guys are going on to become you know the the really the the foundation of the great yankee teams as that you joined when you when you finally made it to the major leagues what was it like going through the system because when you joined they were not a very good team and by the time you joined them they're a juggernaut from the minor league perspective and all your teammates what's it like watching the growth of the organization at that point um, exhilarating and frustrating. Yeah. And so, you know, w- w- when I was in Double A in Norwich, Connecticut at the time, and, and this was 96, so Derek had just won Rookie of the Year, was on his way to winning Rookie of the Year. You know, we kind of saw that w- that that didn't surprise us, right? And so Mariano getting to starting to take over that closer role and setting up for Wetland that year. Mm-hmm. And you could kind of see uh, that they were destined to, to be part of something special. And then, you know, you hear about these, these homegrown farm products, Gerald Williams, Bernie Williams, Hensley Mullins. You know, the, this was like the, the generation that was going to get the Yankees back on the map. And, you know, Andy Pettit was a little bit slower to get there. But once he got there, he was a huge, huge uh, help. Jorge Posada, same way. He and Andy kind of were a year ahead of us. And, and so it was great to see an organization rebuild. But, again, you go back to draft day when I got that call, the first thing I thought of was the Yankees are kind of crappy right now. Yeah. And so you think – from a from a selfish personal perspective, maybe I have a shot of getting through the minor leagues and and getting up there and contributing pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and it quickly became evident by 1996 that that was no longer the case. That this team, of course, would go on to win the World Series and start this just incredible run, and so you know I say a little bit of frustration because you know we had a shortstop uh, on that Norwich team, a guy named Roger Burnett, who had played at Stanford University, and he was our backup shortstop. And he, he had kind of been through his sixth year, and he asked for his release halfway through. And literally the next night, he was starting in AAA for the Montreal Expos affiliate. And so you think, see things like that where you're thinking, it's great that I'm in the Yankee organization. They, they treat their players well. Um, you know, they, they, winning is important. But then in the back of your mind, you realize, well, I'm st- stuck here. I'm the third starter on a, trip, on a AA staff where I might be able to start on a, on a AAA or even be in the big leagues with another organization. Um, but that's part of it, you know. You you don't get to pick what organization owns you, and uh, you keep working hard and hope that you get an opportunity. A lot of things are relative to the time that you spent in the game, which is now over 20 years ago, versus now when you have staffs filled out with a lot of hard-throwing relievers. But your strikeout numbers stand out, uh, and your walk numbers, strikeouts to walks. 
what's what's your scouting report on what you were at that age and coming up through the system? <laughs> uh, well, it's funny what you remember and what you what you try to forget. So yeah, you know, I I was um, I was hung up on strikeouts. I I kind of. I felt like I became a high, you know, I was a fourth round draft pick. You know, I was a second pick that year, but mm-hmm. the Yankees didn't have a second and third yeah. round pick. And I attributed a lot of that to my strikeout numbers. I struck out a lot of guys in college. And so somewhere subliminally or maybe not so subliminally in my brain, I thought I need to keep striking guys out. And it wasn't until I switched to the bullpen where I realized that that was, that was backwards thinking. And so, you know, I think scouting report, I had pretty good stuff. I had a, I had a good slider. Um, and so minor league hitters adjusting to wooden bats, they had they had trouble picking up that late break. And so I, I got a lot of swings and misses. Um, wasn't exactly uh, a pinpoint um, location type of pitcher, but I was extremely durable. And so, you know, if I, you look at 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, I was a starting pitcher. I think I led almost all those teams in innings pitched because I just was blessed with a good, healthy shoulder and – I had a lot of teammates who worked as hard or harder than me, and they just couldn't keep their shoulders from 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 getting injured. And so, um, I was raw, and it took me a little bit longer than most to try to harness maybe that slider. And then Mill Stottlemyre actually taught me a sinker during the strike mm. in '94, and and I started. You know, it just took me a little bit longer to refine everything to a point where I could be a, a contributor on a big league team. But um, but I wouldn't trade any of it. You got your chance almost six years after getting drafted. It's April of 98. Mariano, I believe, goes on the DL, so you get your call. Andy Pettit starts the game that you make your debut in since Seattle. Um, it's not a storybook debut. The Yankees lose the game 8 to nothing. You give it the last few runs. There's, uh, you know, I, I want to know what your nerves are like after having – you're not a kid. You know, you've been in the system for a while, but – you're, you're trying to get through this inning in Seattle. I believe A-Rod is on – no, Griffey is on deck as you get A-Rod out. So what are all the emotions going through you, and what's the, what's the exhilaration coupled with the result of the game for a guy making his big league debut? Yeah, it was crazy. Um, so, you know, that, that, that week, I remember it like it was yesterday. So, so I was the last player cut from spring training. Okay. And so I flew from Tampa to San Diego with the team for the last couple games of exhibition – just in case somebody got hurt. Nobody got hurt. So when the team went to play Anaheim, they flew me back to Tampa to pack up my apartment. I drove from Tampa to Green, to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I was stopping to spend the night at my uh, in-law's house on the way to Columbus. Okay. I woke up the next morning to a phone call from Brian Cashman. They had tracked me down. I flew back to Seattle. No cell phones. No cell yeah. phones. That's right. They, had, they, were, they were searching for me, <laughs> literally. Um, and I got to the, the old kingdom in the uh, the bottom of the third inning, and I pitched the eighth. And so, you know, I had gone east coast to west coast, back to the east coast, driven 10 hours, flown back to the west coast, and I kind of thought, and this is a great lesson to always be prepared, I, I thought there's no way they're going to put me in the game tonight. Um, and so I wasn't where I needed to be, and I was a little bit stiff yeah. probably from all the other things, but, you know, no excuses in baseball. We were losing 4 nothing. I came in, gave up four more, I think, uh, and – uh, we came in after that game, and you know that that team had a lot of promise, yeah. and the season did not start well. And that night we had a players-only meeting, and here I am. I had just shown up. Uh, you know, I was trying to keep my mouth shut and try to help, and here I made a a bad situation worse. You know, from four nothing to eight nothing, and David Cohn, I'll never forget. He just kind of rallied the troops and 
and you know the what happened in the next month I think is is pretty well documented. Team starts out one and four with that loss, and there's there's talk about whether or not George Steinbrenner is going to fire Joe Torre and where this team goes. And that's a very famous meeting that you're talking about. David Cohn, Paul O'Neill, Tino Martinez, you know. I, yeah, I mean, you hit on this a little bit, but can you describe what it's like to be sitting there and these guys are, are diving into, and, and not in nice terms, they're diving into what is what their future of the season is all about. And you're just, I mean, I can't imagine you said anything. You're just kind of sitting here soaking it all in. No coaches, just players. What's the feeling like going through there? Um, a little bit intimidating, but it, it was such a thrill. And it's, you know, again, it's 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 the, the camaraderie and the chemistry. And, and at that point, the light went off for me in terms of this is professional baseball. This is what these people do for a living. And mm -hmm. so up to that point, when you're playing minor league baseball, yeah, you have friendships and you're a team, but every guy on that roster in the back of their mind is thinking, if I get called up, I, this has been a successful year. M way more important than, hey, if we can make it to the playoffs or if we can win 100 games. And so when I finally, you know, I left that meeting thinking, first of all, I had very little interaction with David Cohn at that time. Paul O'Neill and Tino were the heart and soul of that team. Had no interaction with them other than sitting next to him on a bus on a, at a spring training game. Mm -hmm. so to, see, to see that passion and that that fire um, was was really eye opening, and it, it kind of again the the light bulb went off, and I thought, all right, this is for real. Like these guys are here for one reason and one reason only. Like there's nowhere else to get called up to. Like this is the group, this is the core, this is the team. And they expect to be world champs, and um, it was it was pretty awesome. Yeah, they only went one thirteen and forty four after that game, so uh, you know <laughs> nothing uh, nothing to write home about, I guess. Uh, they went on obviously a big run after that. You got the win in the home opener. It was a crazy seventeen thirteen. Your first big league victory is at Yankee Stadium in this nutso home opener. What do you remember? Um, not a whole lot. <laughs> so, you know, again, you, you go into home opener, 55,000 fans. My first first time ever at Yankee Stadium. I spent two years in Norwich, Connecticut in, in the minor league affiliate. And a lot of guys on off days would go to Yankee Stadium. And, mm -hmm. and my roommate and I said, you know what? We're not going to go. We're like the first time we're going to go to Yankee Stadium is going to be wearing the pinstripes. And so who was your roommate? A guy named Jeff Antolik from uh, from Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and, and he never got the opportunity. Um, and you know, so so that was my first foray to the old Yankee Stadium. The, I call it the real Yankee yeah. Stadium. And um, it was a beautiful day. It was fifty five thousand fans. David Cohn started the game, and again, I'm the kind of the mop up guy, and so I'm thinking, well, Coney's going to go six or seven, and uh, you know, again, baseball, you, it never goes the way you expect it to go. You know, to get the game ball um, that I've still got, you know, to keep forever that has the line score on it. You you, you want it to be like a three to two ball game. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you mentioned it was 17 to 13. I think I came in uh, midway through the fourth inning or maybe even the third inning and it was already like eight to three. And uh, I came in with the bases loaded and I faced Matt Stairs and I got him to hit a ground ball, but we didn't turn it. And, uh, you know, it kind of it expanded the lead a little bit more, but I was able to go back out and kind of. Uh, hold the fort and of course but the minute we got the lead they got me the heck out of there and, <laughs> uh, and we held on but you know that was that team I, I won four games that year as a mop-up role and you think about you know you know the game of baseball normally if you're the mop-up guy or a long reliever like you don't get decisions very often that just means four times I was put in a game that most people would consider over that this offense and this team just found a way to battle back tie it up take the lead and then 
they get me the heck out of there and the cavalry comes in, Jeff Nelson and, and Mike Stanton and yeah. then Mariano and it was it was ball game. Four and one, five point six two ERA. You pitched in twenty four games. You made six trips. You got six call ups during the course of the year. Um, for fans who don't understand everything that gets involved in, you know, a, a player you mentioned part of it, just your first call up was all the ordeal that went into it. But what's it like having to be on that what they used to call the Columbus shuttle back in the day? Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, I I tell the story all the time. So Joe Torrey was a great communicator, and and you know, I'll, uh, my daughter who's now fifteen, like she could have she could have written out the lineup card on that team, and they'd have, they'd have won one hundred and nine games instead of one hundred and fourteen. Um, but the way he, he he managed egos and and characters, and you know, kind of put us in a position to be successful. And so I remember Joe when I got called up for Mariano, he basically said, "Hey, you're here for eight days. Mm-hmm. As soon as Mariano's healthy." you're going back to Columbus. And that really kind of relaxes you a little bit. You know, whether I throw four innings and give up 22 runs or if I throw 22 innings and don't give up a run, like eight days from now, you're going back to Columbus. So it it takes a little of the pressure off of you. And uh, I just remember when I got back to AAA after that first call-up, you have have really two options. One is kind of pout and think, well, I should still be up there. And then somebody else passes you up. Right. when there's the, the next call up or you you work harder you get the, that taste of what it could be and you work harder than ever before and make sure that when there if and when there's a need for another right-handed pitcher that you're the guy that gets it and not you know somebody else who's on that triple a roster every call is a validation that you've been doing what you're supposed to do is keep working hard right absolutely right yeah and of course you know at the end of the day in the back of my mind you're thinking you know this could be as that season progressed, you're thinking this could be a pretty special team to, to have been a part of. And so there's plenty of motivation at that point. There's a moment that I asked somebody about what they remembered about you. And they brought up this story that you were going to tell me before we started recording. So I want to get to this. In July, there's a game in Toronto. Roger Clemens hit Derek Jeter with a pitch. You come into the ball game, and you hit Tony Phillips. And what I was told was that's – instant respect from that entire bench and you're talking about in July this team is already what 50 games over 500 mm-hmm. on their way to greatness and you've been up and down a couple of times from minor leagues you earned everybody's respect with one pitch tell me about that story yeah you know it's kind of again it, it's overused cliche but there are unwritten rules of baseball um, Derek was the heart and soul and you know the still the wonderkind at that point and you know we were we were playing well and and frankly, there are, there's always every roster in professional baseball has one or two guys who are really worried about their stats, you know. And so, um, we we had somebody on that in that game who who pitched before me that didn't want to hit somebody because they didn't want to get a runner on base because they might come around to score. And so, um, you know, I was sitting next to Graham Lloyd in the bullpen, and he had he had been great a great mentor for me. And um, you know, Graham just kind of looked at me and he said, "Hey." You, you think that was, you know, you think that was an accident that Clemens hit Jeter? And I said, hell no, that wasn't an accident. And he said, okay, good. And that was all the hint that I needed. And so, um, obviously, you want to you wanna keep your game in it. You know, you don't want to be stupid. You're not going to hit the leadoff guy. But, you know, I had an opportunity. First base was open. And, and Tony Phillips came up. And, um, you know, it was it probably did solidify my, my role on that team. Again, I, I knew what my role was, and it was to, to pitch in games when – um, we needed to protect maybe some of the more reliable arms down there. And so to go in and, and kind of make a statement, now Roger Clemens threw a little bit harder than me, uh, <laughs> and, and Tony Phillips had a great career, and, uh, but probably isn't up to Derek Jeter. But 
to your point, I think uh, I'm glad that somebody mentioned that because it was it was one of those things where you just thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand up for my teammate here. In the aftermath of it, is it all just left unsaid, or did people come up and recognize to you what happened? Um, the, the key people on that roster came up to me that half inning. You know, Paul O'Neill, Tino Martinez, mm-hmm. um, Jeter certainly basically just said, hey, yeah, thanks. What did you learn about leadership on that team and your experience? The first couple of years, you're on part of teams up and down that won consecutive World Series. A lot of the guys you're talking about are legends in Yankee uniforms. Um, and leadership is a key part of everything that they went through. From the players and to the manager, Joe Torre, what are some of the leadership lessons that you took that are valuable to, to you now and what has become your career? Yeah, certainly. You know, I mentioned Joe and his communication. So communication skills. At that point, we're all grown men. You know, it's not you're not going to hurt my feelings when you say, hey, when Jeff Nelson's back, you're going back to AAA. And so just conveying clear expectations and, and communicating those expectations very certainly in, in certain terms and clearly. And then accountability. You know, we talked about that that team only meeting. You know, these are these are grown men. These are 30 to 40 year old men who um you know, we talk about it here in college athletics, all the time. The teams that succeed police themselves. It's all about personal accountability. And so when I got to the ballpark, if I was only 10 minutes early, which in Yankees terms is late, mm-hmm. like it wasn't Joe Torre and Mel Stottlemyre didn't have to grab me. Like David Cohn and David Wells said, hey, dude, like, what are you doing? Um, and so, you know, certainly just being able to, to, to hold people accountable and then make sure that everybody understands their role. You know, I talk about that that team. So Dwight Gooden and um, Daryl Strawberry were mm-hmm. both on that roster in the twilight of their career. But they had learned so many things the hard way, and they were so candid and willing to share them. And then our two bench players on that team were Tim Raines and Chili Davis. Yeah. Tw- uh, 21 years and 20 years, so 41 years of Major League Baseball between them. Mm-hmm. And their role was to sit on the end of the bench until the eighth inning and then try to get a hit off of – the opposing team's closer, and they could have pouted, and they could have moped, and they could have said, I'm a future Hall of Famer. I don't need to be doing this. They never did that. They took Shane Spencer, and they took Ricky Lede, and they took Derek Jeter, and they said, hey, you know, do you see him tipping the pitch, or you know, are you leaning when you're, you shouldn't be leaning, or whatever those things are? And so, again, it was top to bottom, people policing themselves, holding each other accountable, and then just being good communicators, and those are, those are probably the, the most um, – useful lessons that I learned from that team. I want to get to your career here at Army and your career as an athletic director, but the one interesting thing that stands out in your bio, one of the interesting things that stands out in your bios, you're rolling for love of the game. Uh, it's To me, the movie is a lot like watching a perfect game because once it, once you turn it on somewhere, you have to watch to see if he gets it. And wouldn't you know it, every time he ends up getting it. Are you the, are you the other the Yankee starting pitcher in that game? Is that your role? Yes. So, uh, you know, it's like art art mimics life, right? I got the loss on that day too. I, 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 lost, <laughs> I lost a game to Kevin Costner. Or, uh, but, yeah, it was – it was interesting. That kind of fell into my lap. That was the 98 season. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a, um alternate for the postseason roster. So everybody was healthy, thank goodness. And I was down in Tampa throwing to hitters just in case, you know, Ramiro Mendoza or Jeff Nelson, you know, got a blister or whatever so they could activate me for the postseason, which, you know, didn't happen and they nearly swept their way through the series. Um, and the guy that I was rooming with, his agent was a Beverly Hills sports council agent and they had this movie opportunity and he couldn't do it so I volunteered and 
my wife got to meet Kevin Costner and <laughs> I got to live at the Waldorf for eight weeks uh, during filming. And it was, you know, the, the best off-season job a, a, a baseball could, player could have. And, you know, looking back now, you know, my kids weren't born and they get to look at it and make fun of me as, as our children like to do. But, yeah, very unique and it was great. And Kevin Costner treated us extremely well. And, you know, John C. Riley was in the movie who was he was kind of an up-and-comer at the time. And now he's a, he's a big deal. And J.K. Simmons. But uh, really neat, and, you know, to get to hang out at the Cathedral of Baseball every day and, and it being used as a movie set. It's still Yankee Stadium mm -hmm. and it beats waiting tables at, at Daryl's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is what I would have been doing. What do you think when you see the movie? I mean, does it does it stand up to you? As, I mean, as Kevin Costner, I think Dave Island helped tutor him. Did you help work with him as well, too, on his form? I did. Yeah, Dave, Dave was, uh, you know, heavily involved and he was one of the Tigers players on mm -hmm. the set. And, um, and yeah, I, we, you know, we... Costner was just curious, you know. He wanted to know how do you grip this, how do you grip this. What, is my balance point good? Like he he wanted to be sellable as as a major league pitcher, which you certainly respect. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was an interesting uh, winner for sure. So you've got a 1998 World Series ring. Uh, this is an unusual place for you to be. You've gotten to the point where you're the athletic director at the United States Military Academy. How did you get here? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so I asked myself that. Uh, it's interesting. W when I got drafted in the fourth round in 92, I remember thinking, you know what, I'm going to use every opportunity to make relationships and maybe I can end up being a general manager or a professional coach. Um, you know, and I ended up sticking around for 13 years. And by the end of my career, uh, most of the, the coaches and front office people who I had watched and, and paid attention to were divorced. Uh, at that point, I had two kids and you know, I kind of had that moment. I was 34 years old. I was in a sling. I just had Tommy John surgery. I was fully enrolled back at Wake Forest for a 20-credit-hour semester. And, you know, you have that oh-crap moment where you're like, I need to work for 30 more years and, and feed people and pay bills. And and how are you ever going to be as passionate about something as I've been for 30 years in terms of pursuing this baseball thing that I had pursued? And um, felt really fortunate to have made it to the major leagues, to have played on a World Series championship team. So it was, it was easier for me to walk away. I, I had made my peace with the game. And so I shifted gears and said, what am I going to do that's going to be fulfilling? And, and I, I didn't want to get divorced, and I didn't want to work every night and every weekend. So coaching was out. And I kind of fell into college athletics. Um, and I, the, I, I started working at my alma mater at Wake Forest as a fundraiser and did that for about four or five years and realized that's – not what I wanted to do forever. Um, asking people for money all day, every day can be draining. And so I had a mentor in Ron Wellman, who was the athletic director at Wake, and he kind of said, hey, let me take you under my wing. We'll negotiate Nike deals and schedule football games. And and the light went off again, and I realized this, this is what I want to do. And interviewed for the job at Furman University um, just about four years ago and got my first chance to run a Division One athletic department and, and loved it and had great support. And I really enjoyed interacting with the university leadership and the deans and the provost. And and then when this job came open, you know, and I don't have military background in my family. I just know that these kids are the most committed, dedicated, honorable, noble kids on any college campus in this country. And uh, to get to spend time with a superintendent who's a former football player, and he, he understands what we're trying to do. And, you know, he, he wants me to, to run a Division One athletic department and, and be competitive. And, you know, at the end of the day, our kids are here to defend the Constitution of the United States, which yeah. is unique. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that it's unique in a good way, and, and we use that as a selling point. And so here I am on the banks of the Hudson River, 
you know, for a kid who grew up in Cleveland and moved to the South, and now I'm back up here, and uh, I feel like I've hit the jackpot, you know, several times really in my career. How is the role of athletic director different at West Point compared to, say, Penn State, Alabama, USC? Well, there's more balls to juggle. And so, you know, I've worked at two pretty well-respected academic institutions in Wake Forest and Furman where you've got to strike a balance between making sure they're focused on academics, but then utilizing that other time to become as as well-versed in their sport as possible because we want to win a national championship. And here it's unique in that you've got those two things just as strong as anywhere in the country in terms of academics and and the desire to win a national championship. But you've got this third piece, which is you've got a five-year military commitment. And and these kids wake up every morning at 530 in the morning. The cannon goes off, and they start doing physical physical training. And so, you know, our soccer team might be playing for a berth in the Patriot League championship that night. But if there's an eight-mile jog that morning and – grenade practice then they're doing it there are no exceptions there's no excuses there's no shortcuts and so a lot of times coaches who don't want to be at a place like West Point would never stand for that right it's like you know they've got to be focused and rested and ready to go for this game and here you say you know what we're just going to be tougher than everybody and so um, you know, some days easier said than done, uh, but, you know, I, I go into battle with these kids every day, literally and figuratively. What Other than beat Navy, what are the goals here? Is that one, or is that one drilled into you more than the others? Oh, yeah, that's it. Beat, beat Air Force, <laughs> beat Navy. Um, no, really, we're here to, to train leaders. You know, at the end of the day, we literally are here to educate, train, and inspire this next generation of, of commissioned officers in the United States military. And so as the father of two teenagers, you know, every day that I come to work, I feel so much better about the future of this country because I'm meeting these young people who are going to be tasked with this. And to the, the level of sincerity that they have and, and how committed they are, uh, again, they're, they're here to defend the Constitution of the United States, to fight for this country. And, you know, while they're here for the four years, it's important to me that I give them the opportunity for these last four years of their lives, most likely, that they're going to get to play the sports that they love. Mm-hmm. I want them to have the best experience and the smoothest travel and the best facilities that we can provide so that they actually feel like I am a Division One college athlete. Now, a year from now, I might be in Afghanistan in harm's way. Um, so that it's really imperative that we provide them with a, a great experience that they can look back because they've committed so much to us that we've got we've to commit as much as we can to them as well. If you can add beat Michigan, you know, I'm a Penn State guy, so yeah. if you can add that to the – they're on the schedule this year, September 7th. This is an intimidating place to, to, to walk into. And you said you have no military background. Uh, you took this job, and you walk around here, and you see everything that happens in this place. What's that feel like? Um, it is intimidating. And, you know, I had a candid conversation with the superintendent, who's also a three-star general. Um, and I just said, listen, sir, I don't want to ever be disrespectful. I don't fully understand all there is to understand about military and, you know, chain of command. And he said, listen, all you need to know is we want to we want to win. And we want somebody who to come in here to run a Division One college athletic department. And so really kind of disarming. And again, it goes back to what we talked about in terms of being a good communicator and, and holding each other accountable. And obviously, I keep him in the loop. But at the end of the day, we think we do things differently here. The, the superintendent is here for four to five years. And then whether he's the best superintendent in the history of West Point or not, he moves on to his next assignment and a new superintendent comes in and he or she may have a totally different expectation and a different plan. 
Same is true for the commandant. And so there are little intricacies about this job that are unique. Um, but at the end of the day, everybody here has the same goal, and that's to, to, to give these cadets every opportunity to become better people, better soldiers, better leaders to, to, to help make this country as great as it can be. And as long as you're kind of keeping your eyes focused on those things and inspiring that next generation, then, then things tend to work out. As you and I speak, college football season is getting ready to kick off. Pretty good season last year for uh, for the Black Knights. What's uh, give us all a preview of what to expect here this year? Yeah, you know we're excited. Uh, you know, I, I, as I interviewed for this job, and I was going to the the final round of interviews, which of course was at the Pentagon, <laughs> because what job interview doesn't end up at the yeah. Pentagon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we talked about it, and it. it to me, it's a great opportunity, and I looked at this job, and, and you know, I've had a chance, some conversations with Boo Corrigan, who was my predecessor, who, who put us in this position and has done a phenomenal job. But, you know, I feel like we've got the best football coach in the country. Um, a lot of people would look and say, we're, we're coming off a season where we're 11-2, and two, and, you know, my, my closest friends have said, hey, there's only one, one way to go. And of course, I say, yeah, you know, twelve and one is next, and thirteen and zero after that. And so, um, we we expect to go out every week and win that game. And no, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. We got to face Rice um, just over a week from now, and and the goal is to beat Rice. And so, we we want to do that as many times in a row as we can. But um, yeah, it's it's it, I've been handed the keys to a car that's running very well. But again, the minor league mentality in my that's ingrained in me is come to work every day with figure out one thing to do to get better. And if everybody in the department shows up every day trying to get better and get better and get better, then there is only one way to go up, one way to go, and it's up, it's not down. The uh, Army-Navy series, uh, Army's won three in a row now, so I know one of your main responsibilities is to keep that going. Uh, you're bringing the series back to... Uh, our local area here. It's going to be at MedLife Stadium in 2021 uh, as part of your job is doing the schedules. Is that something that's going to continue for a longer term than that? just that one game? Is it going to be back in this area for a while? So we've got well, one more year after that scheduled, and so we're gonna we're actually talking about the RFP process now to to, to go send it out to bid for probably another five to six year cycle. And so you know, 2021 will be the 20th anniversary of 9/11, and so we we thought you know being associated with New York City is great, and obviously selfishly, I think it's wonderful. I'd love it to be there all the time. Although Philadelphia has been has absolutely embraced this event, and it's mm-hmm. such a it's such a special event that that I have never been to, and yeah. so this will be my first Army Navy game. It's been a bucket list item, and and it's funny I've never been able to get a ticket, and <laughs> and now a lot of people are are hoping that I'll be the one that gets them tickets. Um, but yeah, so we're really excited to to have the opportunity to come to MetLife and and really recognize um, the the nine eleven anniversary and and you know how how important it is to, that we never forget that. But of course, we, we want a home for this game and. There are so many pockets in this country that are great supporters of our military, both Army and Navy graduates, that, that you know, we want it to be a traveling show, but we also want it to be. It's important that, that both the, the, the Corps of Cadets and the midshipmen can get there uh, to keep the what's so special about that event continues to be special. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of options moving forward, but we're just in the early process of looking at future years. Was December 14th the first day that got circled on the calendar as you filled it in? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd, and my birthday is December 12th. My daughter's is December 15th. And uh-huh. so I said, well, well, we'll celebrate both of them in Philadelphia and she, she's on board. So, yeah, that's uh, that I, I really can't wait to, to see these two teams go go at it and the way they always do. It doesn't matter 
you know, what the records are and, again, all these cliches, but it's it's been evident. I mean, they just it, it always comes down to the wire, and these kids fight to the end. And, again, that, that says a lot about the, the shape that our country is going to be in as these kids become leaders. What are some of the other programs here that have that have shown, you know, strong showings uh, in, in the NCAAs that you're proud of already? Well, wrestling. So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and, and I was a wrestler in high school. And, and so I'm thrilled. This is the first school that I've worked at that has wrestling. And, and Coach Kevin Ward has been phenomenal. He's he's kind of brought this this program back. We have uh, seven kids qualified for the NCAAs last year. Six of them are returning. So we're really excited about that. Our men's and women's lacrosse program, obviously the men have been a linchpin top 25 team for, for, for some time. And our women's team under uh, Coach uh, Kristen Skyra has – just started the program four and a half years ago and and we're already we just came off a year where we're 14 and five and so they're knocking on the door to be nationally relevant too and so you know it's it's again gymnastics and all these uh, rugby teams uh, again rugby another sport that I haven't had much interaction with can't wait to see these guys and girls go after it out there but uh, yeah there's a lot to take in 29 varsity sports 1100 cadet athletes that, that compete for us and uh, the great part about this job is I get to live here on post, and so I can I can walk across the reservoir or come down the hill and, and get to experience all of it uh, in, in real time. And given your past connections, do you think bringing Army football back to Yankee Stadium is something you're going to be working on? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, they, they've reached out about to have some conversations. Mm-hmm. I Oddly enough and strangely enough, I haven't had time to actually get down to the city to, to catch up with, with, with our friends at the Yankee Stadium. And, you know, we've got a Notre Dame coming up. Uh, a Notre Dame game coming up that I know there's great history of having played those those games at Yankee Stadium and so yeah I mean it's it's got to make sense it's got to work for our season ticket holders and obviously our, our department here but uh, you know there's there's no better brands in the world in my opinion than you know the New York Yankees and and West Point so it's a great great marriage. My thanks to Mike Buddy and all the fine men and women at West Point. It is a special place and awe-inspiring when you have the chance to be on that campus. Special thanks to Army play-by-play man and good friend Rich DeMarco for putting this on my radar and helping to make it happen. Best of luck to the Black Knights this fall. Following up an 11-win season in 2018, Army football opens this Saturday at home against Rice. If you're new to 30 with Murdy, please go check out our archive on radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, review, all that fun stuff. And if you've missed our chats with Hall of Famers, Mariana Rivera and Mike Messina last month, be sure to check those out. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.